My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah, are we starting? <laughs> we are seeing a kind of almost Zoolander-esque caricature of how excessive fashion can be. Our look shifting was like 16 to 20 hours a day. I would work like 450 hours in a month and making only $6. Creativity is one of the most powerful things that humans have. We underestimate the power of beauty and the power of humour. These are qualities that connect people and connectivity is a really potent thing right now. Don't point a finger, impart knowledge and information instead. Plus size modelling can go suck it. Um, <laughs> it's our job as designers to explore and discover beauty everywhere. So your voice is crucial and powerful in the supply chain. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. Oh, it's getting hot. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I don't Simon Doonan is an actual proper fashion legend and it's a privilege to hear from him in this episode. You might know him best for his work at the famed New York department store Barney's. His title is now Creative Ambassador at Large, but basically he masterminded their windows for years and they were very famous because of their kind of over-the-top carnival atmosphere that contrasted very effectively with the highly polished collections that were sold inside the store. Wait until you hear how he got into it. So growing up gay and dreaming of glamour in 1960s Reading, of all places, he moved to London in search of what he called the beautiful people. And he got that idea out of looking through his mother's magazines. And when he got there, he started cadging window dressing jobs off the likes of Tommy Nutter. That seriously impressed me. Tommy Nutter, if you don't know, I know because I'm so obsessed with Mick Jagger, but Tommy Nutter used to make Mick Jagger's suits and in fact Bianca's as well. So he was this like kind of like big sceney London tailor in the 60s. So Simon worked for him. He was also a club kid, a London club kid that used to go to the Blitz. And he moved to LA when it was still totally weird out there in the late 70s. After that, he moved to New York and worked for Diana Vreeland at the Met. How's that for a CV? Simon's story is both extraordinary and in a weird way, ordinary. In that fashion's epicentre has long been a place where eccentric, creative kids from small perhaps unremarkable towns, can find a home and thrive. And Simon writes about this in his book. It's The Asylum, which came out in 2013. And I do actually write about and reference this book in my book, Wardrobe Crisis. You have to read it. It's one of my favourites. It's really funny, but it's also fascinating because it's true. It's uh, it's full of all these crazy stories from fashion's frontline that you just could not make up. He's actually written a pile of books and he writes a regular column for Slate, which we'll share some links to in the notes to this show. So this episode contains a kind of crash course in the history of cool London fashion. And we talk about a lot of the stuff that has obsessed me for a long time about fashion in the 60s and 70s. And of course, we talk about the shops. Simon has been working in fashion retail for more than 40 years. So it's an invaluable opportunity to kind of get his perspective on how retail has changed and where he thinks it's headed. You're going to love meeting Simon. 
And if there are any fashion students listening, I would just say take notes because he's got some really cool, valuable stuff to say, particularly around breaking into the industry and staying true to your creative spirit. It's valuable stuff. And finally, just make sure you check the show notes for this episode in particular. They're going to be full of pictures. And if some of these references are new to you, then it's all about seeing the visuals. So hop onto my website, clairepress.com, and have a look at some of the awesome photographs that we're going to share there. And maybe even photographs of Simon in some of his get-ups. Let us begin. I want to begin with The Asylum. It's really one of my favourite books and it is surely the book with the very best title about the fashion industry that I've ever heard of. What is nuts about the fashion industry? Well, um, I use the title The Asylum because I see the fashion world as a refuge but also a nut house. So it's a riff on the two meanings of the word asylum. So it's a refuge for people like me who were you know, kind of marginalized freaks from small towns. And um, it's also an asylum in the sense that, you know, collectively it's a lot of people who aren't necessarily employable elsewhere because they're all a bit nuts. I mean, I think my view of the fashion world is very 80s, 90s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and that may or may not necessarily still be true but I do think the the refuge part of it remains true like it may be a bit more corporatized and organized and much larger industry than it was when I was young but it's still a great refuge for people who don't necessarily fit in elsewhere and um, you know there's a lot of room for um, fun and diversity and eccentricity and so it, I think it remains a very good refuge for people who may not fit in our, in more conventional work environments. But that idea of how it has become more corporate and more money-driven perhaps has, I'm going to say, undercut the idea that you can get in there and be a bit crazy and be artistic and make things on the smell of an oily rag. It's become a, perhaps a less obvious refuge for the artist, has it, do you think? Yeah. I always think about the working class kids like the McQueens, the Gallianos, the Kate Mosses, the people who had something really special that propelled them into the limelight, those people are still around. The thing is, it's just become such a, a, a much more massive landscape that um, it was, you know, for many decades, the fashion world was a smaller landscape. You kind of knew everybody. And yes, it was probably easier for creative types to get visibility and prominence. But I believe, conversely, the landscape of fashion now is so huge that there's room for anybody who wants to give it a shot, whether they're in retail, wholesale, designing, modeling, maquillage, whatever point of entry they choose. It's a much bigger landscape with exponentially more opportunities. So I try not to be one of those people that's always whinging about the good old days because <laughs> it was a smaller universe. So people like Jean-Paul Gaultier, Christian Lacroix, Asdine Elia, Yoji Yamamoto, Comte des Garçons, those people loomed very large. Now there's a lot of creativity, but it's just sort of, there's also a tremendous amount of just clothes. There's so many clothes. 
Just listening to you talk then, I was thinking, okay, I was like, oh, well, it's also different now that you can't become a queen using rubber that you've poured down the drain in your garden or whatever. Actually, the fact that the focus or the gaze is no longer purely on Paris probably does give kids in Ukraine or wherever it is more opportunities to be fabulous in different places. I think you have to do stuff because you like doing it. You know, if I was a designer and I had a job in a sportswear company that wasn't particularly mind-blowing, I would make stuff in my own time. I mean, I always did that. Like when I was a window dresser at Aquascutum in the early 70s. Aquascutum! Yeah, it was a (laughs) very conventional store. Yeah, that's where the queen bought her raincoats. But I used to do freelance window jobs at all the fun, crazy. I would go into boutiques. And just say, who does your window? You know, I'll do it for a fiver. Once a month, I'll come in. Because I wanted places where I could do more creative things. And I think the same applies to clothing. If you have a nice design job, but it's a little conventional, don't be complaining about it. Make stuff in your own time and make stuff for your friends. And, you know, it's important to have creative outlets. And don't worry too much whether you become a global brand or not. Just get on with being creative and having fun. You know, I think a lot of the the people that we think of as icons of fashion creativity, you know, the Jean-Paul Gaultiers, the Gallianos, they just did their thing and they were creative and it, and it sort of happened for them as a purely as a function of their creativity. It wasn't like they said, I'm going to become a global brand. They were just every day spewing forth this explosive creativity. And um, that's good to remember, like, enjoy it, enjoy what you do and don't worry too much about whether you're going to hit the big time, you know. Simon, you could have almost been describing your own beginnings. I want to take you back, if I may. Uh, you mentioned window dressing for Aquascutum, but let's roll it back a little bit further. I always love an outsider to insider story. Is it fair to say that you didn't have a particularly glamorous life growing up in Reading? Well, um, I was born not long after the war, you know, we still had rationing. It was quite grim, the 1950s. And, you know, we lived in like a two-room flat with no kitchen and bathroom. I can't imagine how my parents managed, but they did. And they never complained about anything. I never heard any complaints. And um, we just sort of muddled through. And when I was 16, I left school and my mum said to me, you have to get a job immediately because you have to stop paying your national insurance because... Her generation, you know, if you missed a beat or you took your eye off the ball, you could be destitute. So you had to pay your national insurance. The most important thing was having a job and taking financial responsibility for yourself. So she got me a job in the bottle top factory. And um, I did end up going back to college, but I did a series of horrible jobs. And eventually... You demolished toilets. I know this about you. Yeah, demolishing toilets. But I ended up in retail at the John Lewis store in my hometown of Reading. And I thought this is, it was much less money, you know, like demolishing toilets. The money was actually quite good. <laughs> but then I thought I'm going to take a severe pay cut in order to work in retail because it's cleaner, it's more bearable, there's gay people, there's fun people. And so that's how I got into retail. And basically I've been in retail ever since. But you mentioned that your mother wanted you to get a job and be serious but 
I'm reading your, I'm rereading, I've read it before, your fabulous book, Beautiful People, My Family and Other Glamorous Varmints. It's very hysterical. I mean, Betty was a character, a, a glamorous, crazy character, and all the people in your childhood were kind of eccentric, right? Well, yeah, but, you know, my mum left school at 13, and she was a pork butcher when she was young, and then worked in a grocery chain in Belfast, and then joined the RAF, you know, and became an electrician. And she was always had like four or five different jobs. But great hair. Um, great hair. But she, her role model was kind of like Betty Grable, Joan Crawford, Betty Davis. She was a very 1930s, 1940s person. And so her look was very much that, that sort of Hollywood drama. And I never saw her without her hair done and her full makeup on and uh, seen stockings. But... She was from, you know, Irish agrarian circumstances, and she sort of clawed her way out of that world. And, you know, she's a real sort of first-wave feminist without even being aware of it, yeah. you know. She was always very self-determining and spunky. And when she joined the RAF, they said, you know, women don't become electricians. And she said, well, I'm, you know, watch me. I'm going to do it. And Isn't she that did. fabulous? Yeah, it is fabulous. And... um she wasn't sort of intellectual about it. She just was innately feminist. Because she was always working extra jobs, she had money to buy herself clothes and lipstick and keep herself looking nice. And she always looked glamorous and great. She looked completely different from the other mums in our street who looked more like the queen, you know, with that 50s hairdo. My mum still had her 1940s. Betty Davis in Now Voyager kind of look. You mentioned the Queen, and I'm afraid I have to jump on that and raise the fact that you have dressed rather fabulously as the Queen yourself, Simon. Oh, yeah. Well, coming <laughs> from England, you kind of grow up on drag, you know, between pantomime and Monty Python and Benny Hill. Benny Hill! That was the worst. I grew up with that. I think people in Australia don't actually understand that that was on the telly. What is that? That was actually absurd, this old man chasing kind of page three girls through the street. I mean, what? that was like 70s, sort of seven o'clock telly for the family. It was very puerile and very funny and silly. And... um Cheeky, I think, is probably the correct word. And so, yeah, we... But yeah, you dressed as the Queen. Why? I never remember a period of my life when me and my friends weren't dressing up. Like, I have pictures of me when I was 10 or 11, me and my best friend Biddy, a big cabaret performer in London in the 70s. We dragged up in my mother's clothes, and there was just never a time when we weren't dressing up. And then in moving to London in the 70s, um, you know, we go to the Blitz and wear outrageous outfits. And then I moved to L.A. and it was all about Halloween and this costume party and that costume party. So, yeah, it was inevitable that I did the Queen a few times. And um, I even did it to open a cut the ribbon on a Barney's store dressed up as the Queen. <laughs> There's a picture online taken by Bill Cunningham of me in full Queen drag. I have seen it. It is brilliant. <laughs> so, yes, I love the Queen, or Brenda, as we call her. When you found yourself in London, you mentioned the Blitz and the kind of scene of fashiony clubs and stuff. But what did you first find when you went there? And can you tell us a little bit about how you began in window dressing? Well, when I was at Manchester, I ended up going to university, even though I failed the 11 plus. I went to Manchester University, which Manchester is an incredible town. 
I have a lot of affection for it. Two great football teams, you know, and it was so much more exciting than where I grew up. And there were gay clubs and discos and, and it was sort of full on glam rock period. And I was very into my Mr. Freedom look yeah. with the satin and the platform shoes and, and blah, the Mickey blah, blah. Mouse t-shirts. Totally. He, you know, Tommy Roberts was the first person to license Disney characters and put them on trendy clobber, you know, like he was a real visionary. Tommy Roberts, who invented Mr. Freedom, it was a very influential store that everything was satin and tacky and fun and brightly colored and very cartoony. And coming out of that hippie time, that was kind of revolutionary, wasn't it? To be that kind of rainbow, bright, colorful satin Pop. It was sort of a, an evolution of the hippie, sort of Alan Aldridge, that illustrator who worked with the Beatles and that rainbows and unicorns. It was sort of a cartoony, infantile evolution of that, but more slick than hippie and more more hard edge and more glamorous. And uh, well, no, because hippie's glamorous in some way. It was an evolution of that look. You're you're absolutely right. When I was in Manchester, I used to go to all the gay clubs there. They're incredible clubs in Manchester. And one night I met this bloke who was a window dresser at Austin Reed in London. And I thought, that's a fun job. I bet I could do that. <laughs> it doesn't seem that difficult. And he sort of mentored me and let me do freelance jobs with him. And, and I got a job selling clothes in a boutique in London and then eventually got my job at Aquascutum. Like he said to me, oh, they're hiring some entry-level people at Aquascutum. So I applied, and um, I learned so much there because it was very conventional and old-fashioned. I learned all these conventional techniques like busting suit forms and carding shirts and all the things that nobody does anymore. But at the time, these were sort of skills and um the people that worked at Aquascutum were great and interesting. You know, it was like a display studio, you know, with lots of different fun, creative people. And we even had a trans woman, um, you know, who was so glamorous and fabulous. You know, so it was a it was a great place to work and learn stuff, even though the windows were more conventional. But they were designed by this great guy called Michael Southgate, who's a window legend and... Yeah, so he was also a great mentor for me in the display world. And then I started doing my freelance jobs just because I wanted extra money to buy clothes and to have fun and go out. And so I would do all these freelance jobs. And I had a great, the two best freelance jobs I had, one was near Portobello Road, Shirley Russell, who was married to Ken Russell. Oh, yeah. She had a store where she sold and rented all the costumes from Ken's movies, like all the stuff from Incredible. The Boyfriend and from um, Tommy and Savage Messiah and all these, you know, Listomania, all those 70s Ken Russell movies. She did the costumes, Women in Love. They had incredible, because she used to use a lot of real vintage clothes. Yeah. She was a fantastically talented person, very special. And I would do the window like once a month and put all these clothes in there, many of which I would recognize from the films. And then they would rent them, sell them. That was her business. And it God, was I wish I could last... go there. You would. Oh. It was called The Last Picture Frock. The Last Picture Frock. And she had, you know, original Fortunis and incredible stuff. And so I learned a lot about vintage clothes with doing that. That was one freelance job that was great for me. And the other one was Tommy Nutter. And Tommy <laughs> Nutter this is my favorite. First... Yeah, he was so fabulous. He was the first 
kind of hipster tailor on Savile Row and he popularized suits with upswept shoulders and he had the most trendy, groovy people in London. Mick like Jagger. Bianca Jagger. <laughs> Mick, he made Mick Jagger's wedding suit, the white suit, like um, Amanda Lear, Bianca Jagger, David Hockney, Elton John, they all would come in there. And I used to do these wacky windows for them. And then one day, I was also, by this time, I was working at Turnbull and Asser on German Street. So, you know, it's a legendary company that makes custom shirts. So I was doing my freelance job, and I met this guy called Tommy Purse, who has a store in L.A. called Maxfield. And in 1978, I went to live in L.A. and started doing his windows once a week and having my fun time in L.A. But Simon, when I said, this is my favourite, I didn't mean Tommy Nutter, although he is my favourite because he dressed Mick Jagger, who's my ultimate favourite. But I meant this is my favourite of your stories because you put some rats in a rat pack in his window. Can you tell us about that? (laughs) Yeah, I had my creative sort of epiphany at Tommy Nutter because at that point it was run by a guy called Edward Sexton, who's a brilliant tailor who... I was worked with Stella McCartney and taught her how to do tailoring. So he's a very special guy. And they were making these new tuxedos, and I rented these little stuffed rats and put little tuxedo collars on them and made them into little sort of swanky, on-the-town kind of rats with their little wing collars and stuff like that. And it was sort of a... Back then, you could do stuff like that, and people thought it was amusing. Yeah. Now it would probably get some... People would like take get such Peter opinions about everything now. But Tommy Purse thought it was very P-E-R-S-E, thought it was very amusing. And he, you know, said to me, come and work for me in L.A. Come and work for me in West Hollywood and my store, blah, blah, blah. And um, I went home and my, I said to my roommate, Biddy, who was doing his cabaret act and getting ready for work and putting on his lippy, and I said, some bloke offered me a job in L.A. And Biddy said, where's that? And I said, I'm not he really not. sure. Really? No, because <laughs> back then, you have to realize, no one traveled, really. I yeah. don't, didn't know anybody who traveled. So, you know, the idea of Los Angeles, it was sort of in our minds. It was confusing. We didn't quite know what the difference was between Beverly Hills yeah. and Hollywood. And was it all part of the same thing? And so I just, you know, it was London. It was the 70s. Bit there, grim. There was... It was a bit grim, so I just impulsively, aged 25, 26, I got on a plane and went, and and I've been in America ever since. Let's talk about the shops, Simon. So you work for Maxfield, which is an iconic store in L.A., and obviously you're very well-known and famous for working for Barney's for many years. How have the shops changed since you kind of started out? I'm really interested in this idea of how we're kind of the evolution of retail and how we're almost, I mean, I guess with online and the burgeoning online space, are we losing touch with the shops? Well, the main thing that happened was, I think, over the years, rents became unbelievably expensive. I mean, in the 1960s, Paul Smith started out renting a little storefront in Nottingham. And um, you could really start a business that way. All those shops in London, like Granny Takes a Trip, hung on you, kleptomania. They were all creative people who thought, look, there's a a greengrocer that's going out of business or closing and, you know, let's make up some dresses and open a shop. It was an idea. 
you know, uh, opening a boutique was sort of very vibrant kind of idea when rents were cheap. And it was really, I think more people would be doing that and, and doing these concept-y kind of stores like Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren used to do. If rents were cheaper, you know, rents got so staggeringly expensive in the last couple of decades that it's very hard to find a really funky owner-operated store that has a vision because somebody with a vision doesn't necessarily have business sense and isn't necessarily going to make hundreds of thousands of dollars and be able to pay a staggering rent. So that issue of store rent is, you think, oh, are people creative and funky like they used to be? Well, yeah, they they are. are. They can't afford the bloody rent. Yeah. You know, so now I guess the answer is to put your stuff on Etsy or, um, you know, there are uh, rent-free options to people, and I think that's the thing to do. You make something special and put it on Etsy, start your own website, get the word out. I think there's room for that kind of spirit. Yeah. It's just going to happen online. And so. actually, collective rental spaces could be the future. Simon, what makes a great shop? I mean, you've worked for some of the greatest shops there are. Well, Maxfield is a good example. I mean... Tommy Purse is a guy who had incredible vision. When people in L.A. in the 70s were still wearing polyester and, you know, looking really outrageously tacky, (laughs) um, if you look at old game shows from the late 70s, that's what people were wearing, but not at Maxfield, Tommy's store. People were wearing Margaret Howell shirts and these khaki pants and corky shoes, and he had a whole other look going on. And then he gradually introduced these incredibly new, the Japanese designers, the Elias. You know, he introduced it all to the West Coast. You still don't associate that kind of vibe with the West Coast, do you? Um, yeah, or do you? I don't know. Like, you know what they have now? They have this much more, like, um, sort of hippy-dippy look, people like the elder statesmen. The girls in L.A. who live in Venice and Malibu and Santa Monica... They have a sort of low-key, funky style, which is, you know... It's Bondi, baby. It's the same here. Yeah, probably similar to a Bondi. You know, so they're not... I personally am very comfortable around super tacky people. Um, you know, I like, <laughs> I like there to be... You know, I think the most important thing is for people to look like who they really are. Yes, you know? yes. And if you love spandex and bleaching your hair and wearing tight tops, it's fine with me. I think the most important thing is to be sort of authentically who you are. I think that's why people loved that show, The Jersey Shore, because those kids were wearing all these Ed Hardy T-shirts and and there was something very exuberant about that completely uninhibited embrace of flamboyant style that had nothing to do with old-fashioned ideas of good taste. It was very exhilarating and fun. I think that's why I love that show. But you you do cancel for a, a dash of vulgar. I mean, that's something I've read in your books, that if you're too polished, it's sort of a bit, it's a bit drab, isn't it? Yeah, Diana Vreeland said, vulgarity is a very important ingredient in style. It's like a dash of paprika, and you we need more of it. And she said, you know, when she walks down the street... It's the yellow plastic ducks in a store window that stop her, you know, stop her in her tracks. You could have put like she, those ducks in the window, Simon. Oh, did I? I forgot to tell you I worked for Diana Vreeland 
when I came to New York, uh, before I got my job at Barney's, I worked at the Met Costume Institute when Freeland was still running it. Just forgot to tell you, I worked with DV. Yeah, (laughs) for six months. It was a six-month short-term gig, and I was the display designer on this big show she did called Costumes of Royal India, which was all saris and beautiful bejeweled. Um, Maharaja outfits and everything and that's when she said pink is the navy blue of India it's when she came up with that incredible what was she like was she like she she was so great like she completely understood the fashion customer back then in the 80s it was very much about you know Jackie Kennedy Lee Radswill Pat Buckley Nan Kempner these sort of society ladies and she understood them and who they were and what they dressed but she was also had a laser like focus on anything innovative and that yes. and she had that always had that you know putting people like Twiggy Verushka Giorgio Di Sant'Angelo you know Zandra Rhodes she would see these people and just have an utter conviction about you know what it meant and I always remember in her office was this huge trunk and in it were all these colored Dynell wigs and they were all left over from the 60s, you know, those incredible Vogue covers where there's like Farouchka or Celia Hammond or Jean Shimpton and they're wearing these colored Dynell wigs and she was almost waiting for it all to come back. She said, these are great. I'm never letting these go, like these incredible thick color wigs. And when I worked on a subsequent show, just as a freelance gig, I used to help out with subsequent shows at the Met. She did one called Dance, and that's about 1987, I think. And um, we did a disco room, and we used all her Dynell wigs um, with all these Cardin disco dresses and um, Courage and all that futurist stuff. So we did get to use her wigs before she died. And, it's just so um, great. I went to her memorial. Oh. Her memorial was incredible. And I sat right near Jackie Kennedy, and Jackie Kennedy cried throughout the whole thing. She was very close to her, and everyone said, oh, look, Jackie's really letting it, her emotions out, which is something she couldn't do, obviously, at Goodness. Jack's funeral. That must have been, that's amazing, and it must have been such a scene, that thing. I mean, goodness. Yeah, it was it was amazing, um, like a bit of history. And you, I thought, bloody hell, what am I doing here? I felt like such an interloper. <laughs> but, you know, we all got invited, the people that had worked of course. at the Costume Institute in that period. It was via the Met that you met Jean Pressman, right? And then went to work for Barney's. Yes. So back then, the Met Ball was more of a sort of society kind of gathering, you know, more of a typical Met function. And um, it was glamorous and fun, you know, um, especially with Diana Reeland at the center of it. But it was more like Paloma Picasso. And um, so I remember that back then the riffraff were allowed to buy a dessert ticket. So if you had a 100 bucks, you could buy a ticket just to come for the dessert dancing portion of it. Amazing. And that's when... People flooded in. I remember for the India exhibit, like everyone I knew in Manhattan, they came, you know, I remember just seeing Janice Dickinson in some Indian outfit and Miss J. And Come on, I'm so jealous yeah, of your life. <laughs> all flooding into the Temple of Dendor. I went with Suzanne Barch, actually. She, I know, Suzanne Barch, yeah. Incredible. Yeah. 
And um, so, for listeners who aren't aware of Suzanne Birch, she's the queen of New York nightlife and an extraordinary dresser and person of great fabulousness. Was she riffraff then, though? <laughs> no, no, she's already established herself out. She's a retailer and she had a great store in Soho. And she put many English people like Body Map, John Galliano, Stephen Leonard. She's a real visionary. She was wearing this Vivian Westwood little crinoline, those mini crinolines. Yes. I don't know if you remember those. Of course. So this is 1985. And this friend of mine introduced me to Gene Pressman. And he said, oh, I know you. You do all those punk rock windows at Maxfield. And um, he said, you should come work for me. And I came and met with him and we hit it off and... And I went back to L.A., sold my car, and moved to New York. And um, Did so it feel was, like yeah, home? Um, I had never thought too much about it. Like, I've made these big transitions like that in my life, and I never discussed them with anybody, and I never introspected about them very much. And I never thought too much about it, because I always had um, fun people around me, friends, and somewhere to crash, and... You know, I was always lucky that way. Like, um, I moved to New York at the same time as a good friend of mine, Robert Forrest, who worked with Rifat Osbeck. Do you remember Rifat Osbeck? Of course, yeah. And and we sort of lived together in the Osbeck showroom and slept <laughs> under rails of Osbeck. Get out! And Osbeck and Robert also represented Georgina Godley and culture shock remember culture shock i don't actually i need to find that out yeah culture shock were great um but robert represented them all and and we would sleep under these rolling racks (laughs) of clothes it's like so high low (laughs) yeah dossing down under the most fabulous clothes (laughs) doss it totally and and um when the whole collection would come in robert would get me to put it on just to go get a rough (laughs) idea of what the outfits were you know he'd seen it all on the show but you know, I think he likes to just watch me be silly yeah. and dress up in it. <laughs> Rifa Osbeck is who's one of the most talented people. He was extraordinarily creative. He's doing and, homewares um, now, isn't he? He's doing an extraordinary yeah. interiors project. So every collection Rifat did was extraordinary and much copied. You know, and I think a lot about the stuff he used to do. Yeah, I think he's on my list of Great people from that era, like Romeo Gigli and Lacroix and Gautier. It was a real time of... Definitely on that list. It was very decadent, that era, wasn't it? I was thinking about how embellished all that stuff was and how, I mean, Lacroix, darling, like how intensely festive it all was. Yeah, um, there wasn't any minimalism going on. That came later, I guess the Japanese and Jill Sander and stuff like that came later, um, but no, it was um, theatrical and it was about exaggeration and and postmodernism too. I mean, definitely Gautier is the great postmodern. Moschino, Gautier, Todd Oldham, they were the great postmodern designers. I think who were mashing up culture and a pox on minimalism. Anyway, it's not really your bag, is it? I mean, I can't imagine your windows taking a minimalist turn. No, I mean. I have a big appreciation for it. Like, I think, you know, Rick Owens is somebody that, you know, I'm known from L.A. And and I have enormous respect for his kind of grand, austere minimalism. It's brilliant. It's not something I could or would wear. I think I would look terrible in it because I'm too short. But he is magnificently creative. And 
I really genuinely believe it's like a jigsaw and all the pieces, you know, there's different parts to it that compose this interesting whole. Things don't negate each other, you know. You ne- In order to have a Rick Owens, you also have to have an uh, Alessandro Michele who's embellishing everything. And That's a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah, like, I'm not a thumbs-up, thumbs-down person. I don't believe in any of that. I think, you know, if you don't like something, don't wear it. Think You should use clothing as self-expression. It should be self-expression. Express yourself. That's what matters. Don't be self-critical. Have fun with it. That's always been my mandate. But um, even though you're not thumbs-up, thumbs-down, you do put thumbs-up to excessive grandeur and fun, Visually, I'm thinking about putting Prince Charles in a bath in the window of Barney's. <laughs> well, I think that's... <laughs> in a crown. <laughs> yeah, well, what I always try to do with Barney's, Barney's and Maxfield, but definitely Barney's, the buyers are incredibly connoisseurial, very serious. They really historically have unearthed the most interesting product, whether it's very subtle or very innovative. And so... It's a very serious place. So I thought, but that's no reason that the windows can't be like Coney Island. So I always thought the windows should be engaging and cheeky and fun and that it would be a mistake to make them austere and minimal. And I think that was why my windows were noteworthy because they were so... It was all paper mache and fairy lights and glued on marabou <laughs> and like completely carnivalesque and like a sideshow at Coney Island, but with exquisite, beautifully edited collections, you know. So I thought that was, that was a unique kind of juxtaposition. Whereas typically back in the day, posh clothes had to have posh windows with posh looking mannequins and, and it was all very predictable. So I thought, oh, yeah, this is fun. I can create environments which are unexpected and dissonant, you know. So, like, create a destroyed room and then put an exquisite dress in there. Sort of like those old 50s photographs where there's some incredible woman in a Balenciaga or Dior dress that's so exquisite in its construction, or like Charles James, something like that, and she's standing in a load of rubble, you know, in a demolished building. So that kind of juxtaposition is, to me, very interesting and elegant, and it's not literal. Oh, look, it's a posh dress. Let's put a chandelier on the ceiling and, you know. um, So I was always looking to create some kind of dissonant things there where there was, what are the things you wouldn't expect to see in an expensive fashion store? And, you know, focusing on that. What about messages? When you said that about the kind of exquisite dress and the kind of grotty surround or destroyed surround, I thought about, have you seen the new Stella McCartney campaign where they're on the rubbish tip? Oh, no, I haven't. But that sounds fabulous. What Stella did with that is just extraordinary stuff because it's a landfill. It should be grim. It could be too earnest and kind of you know, but it's brilliant because the clothes look dreamy and fabulous. And somehow there's a, the message is there, but it's subtle. How important to you is or was messaging through any of the windows? Were you trying to make subversive statements or were you only trying to have fun? To me, it wasn't important at all. Like I'm not an ideological person. I don't, you know, I, my social responsibility was to make sure that the store made enough money that we could employ people and not lay them off. 
there's nothing worse than going through a recessionary period and having to lay off large numbers of people and watch them then not find new jobs. Like, it's terrifying. But having said that, that was always my focus, and I think that's to be financially responsible. Like, I would always say, you know, I was just in the store just now, and I always say, what's selling, what's selling, who's buying, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I'm very, very focused on the bottom line because I've been through those periods where things were very difficult and you had to make some very difficult decisions about letting people go. So I feel that my responsibility was to make sure that we met our numbers so that the expense budgets were in line. And and it's purely, I think, from being a post-war kid. But coming to someone like Stella, she is ideological. And there's a reason for that. She comes from a family that they grew up vegetarian and they were on their farm in Scotland. And she's a, a truly authentic person. And I think that comes through with her product and with her and her marketing. And I think she's a really good example of you have to really mean it. And everyone knows yeah. that Stella really means it. And and she's been uncompromising about leather. And I just listened to her on Desert Island Discs. Oh, and yes. anybody, you, anyone should podcast Stella on Desert Island Discs because she really is an incredible girl. And I have huge admiration for her. And and I really feel that, you know, she really is, um, has stuck to her guns and, and does it with great panache and empathy for her customers. And so I'm a big fan. I wanted to finish on a big question about the future of fashion. What are your thoughts on where we're headed? I mean, there's been all this talk about see now, buy now. I feel like that fizzled out a bit. I think you're asking the wrong person. I have no vision whatsoever for the future. I'm completely idiotic about stuff like that. I remember years ago at Barney's in the 90s, early 90s, our marketing director, she said to me, we need to talk about this thing called the internet and the web. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about, girl. And she, <laughs> we had this meeting and we said, People are talking about websites and how in the future you're going to be able to buy things from the World Wide Web. And I was just completely flummoxed. I thought, no, who's going to do that when you could go to a store and have fun? It seems absurd. And I said, this is ridiculous. You know, we should run a big ad in the New York Times. We do not have a website. Like I was, I had no idea that women would be getting boxes dropped at their houses with shoes and bags. And I said, who on earth is going to buy a pair of shoes online? You need to try them on. You need to look at them. You need to go into a store and have that experience. So I had no vision whatsoever about that. And so if you'd said to me, oh, in the future, people are going to walk around staring at these rectangles <laughs> that are about three inches by five inches. Even to this day, I... I don't do that, and I, it's all I can do to remember to bring my phone with me when I go leave the house. I'm not screen But doing that is so stupid. You miss the world around you when you look constantly down at the screen when you walk in the street. I can't stand it. Well, I'm, I don't know. I would be hesitant to say that I'm on the right track because I'm always, like, on the wrong track. So, <laughs> All right, um, then. We don't I, like that question. We'll no change it. For the future. <laughs> okay, good. I'd rather go out with a bang then. Let's talk about The Devil Wears Prada and the fact that you were maybe going to be Nigel. 
Oh, yes. Um, that was funny. And like uh, in the asylum, I told a story about when The Devil Wears Prada came out. I tried reading it and I couldn't read it. I mean, Mazel Tov to Lauren Weisberger. She had it created a sensation and good luck to her and everything. But it didn't resonate with me because to me, as I say, the fashion world is an asylum where unusual, creative, oddballs, you know, strange, eccentric, creative people get where they get, not because they're ambitious, but because they're they're, they've got something unusual that they're bringing to the table. And I looked at that, I was reading that book and I thought, all I see here is a lot of people with ambition and drive. It, they weren't necessarily unusual. Well, they also, were, they're they quite, quite, it's quite mean. It's quite hideous, that place. Yeah, they were conventional people who had just wanted to claw their way to the top. So it was very much a 1950s idea. It was almost like Valley of the Dolls, where this 1950s idea of, of women with blazing white hot ambition, whereas the fashion world that I was used to from Mutual Pradas to Donna Karen to Stella to John Galliano and all these people, they weren't necessarily focused on becoming successful, but they just had this thing, this voice, this thing they had to say, this thing they wanted to do to make. So I didn't recognize... You weren't into it. Yeah, and I thought, well, I could see why people would be into it because there was this growing number of young people who were excited about the idea of getting into fashion and becoming very successful, becoming entrepreneurs. So then then I got a call from this casting agent saying, we're casting for the Devil Wears Prada and we're, we're interested in having you play Nigel. And I thought, <laughs> bloody hell. And so I went on several auditions and they kept saying, the director loves you, you're great, you're great. And they kept, and then I realized that everybody I knew was auditioning for the part of Nigel. And then I realized they were doing sort of, some kind of free research. They were some picking your actor. brains. Yeah, and I called my dad one day and I said, I've been on this audition for this role in a film opposite Meryl Streep. And he said, blimey, they're really scraping the barrel, aren't they, if they're <laughs> calling you? And I said, yeah, they are. Like, I don't really understand it. But, you know, you get swept along and I was learning my lines and thinking, oh, must show up early and be very sort of, respectful to me. Imagining the house you're going to buy in Hollywood. Yeah, I saw myself flying down Hollywood Boulevard in a pink Cadillac. Um, Anyway, But it it was was not to be. Was not to be, but it was sort of a fun experience and I got a good story out of it. You did. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne.
Because I love you. Because I love you.